Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Country boys and girls getting down on the phone. Come on around back Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. It's Rosie on the house. Your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. First Saturday of the month, that means we have Julie Murphy with the Arizona Farm Bureau in talking farm fresh commodities. And our goal every month with this broadcast is to connect you, the Arizona homeowner, with local uh, agricultural products coming out of the farms and ranches. So when you're out doing your shopping, you know where to look for to find locally sourced uh, products to feed your family. And as always, you've got a special guest in studio and I'll let you, Julie, introduce your special guest. Yes, and if there's any family, farm farm family that we want to feature because they are so local, generational as a farm family, and they have a weekend farm stand during the summer, this is the family to feature. Wes Kerr is my guest, and before I give him the mic, I just want to, one of my favorite times of the year is the summer because there are so many things coming off our fields, summer vegetables. But, of course, we're talking this month, June. It's Dairy Month, which we can access our dairy monthly. The other thing I wanted to highlight in the dairy industry, because it's Dairy Month, is it's a or yeah, $790 million industry. That's a USDA s- statistic. And that's just in cash receipts. That's not counting the other economic contributions. So annually, and right now you're, you guys are ahead of beef, Beef and dairy fluctuate back and forth in that lead position with all the ag commodities, the top 16 that Arizona Farm Bureau likes to feature. So here we are, Dairy Month in June, and that's obviously one of the reasons why I want to pick one of my favorite dairy families, the Kerrs, to be featured. And Wes is in theater. You've been here at the KTR studios before, but I don't think we've ever featured you on one of our... Farm Fresh Hours, That's correct? correct. Yes, this is my first time here. So um, I want to give you the mic, and I want you to tell us about the Kerr farm family. Okay, great. Yeah, so um, I'm a fourth-generation Arizona dairy farmer, and my wife Lauren as well is from a fourth-generation Arizona dairy farm family. My great-grandfather uh, started dairy farming in Michigan in 1927. In 1944, he moved the family to Arizona, and so we've been dairy farming here since 1944. We've hopped around the valley a few times and settled in Buckeye in uh, 1970. And so we've been there ever since. And so it's just a great uh, lifestyle for us. I have three children, and we enjoy raising them on the farm and exposing them to farm life and all that comes with it. And they're absolutely precious. And your wife, Lauren, she's just, it's so neat to know that Talk about being embedded in the Arizona dairy family. You guys definitely are. And you're the best one to talk about some of these issues. The last time we featured dairy on the Farm Fresh Hour, we talked about all the local products. Well, I think you're the one to talk to about some how we raise our cattle mm-hmm. and how much we take care of them. I always like to feature this point. Compared to the Midwest, even the smallest dairy in Arizona is fairly large. So our largest dairies can run as large as 12,000 active milk cows. And our smallest dairies average, give or take, about 850 milking cows. So tell us about your dairy operation, how many cows and all that fun stuff. Yes. So 
We are um, a fairly small dairy in the Arizona um, world. Uh, we are milking just over 1,200 cows. And uh, total animals, we have about 2,300, when you can include our day-old baby heifers that aren't, you know, milking a horse yet. Um, a, a, a heifer is a young cow that hasn't had a calf yet. And usually at about two years of age is when they will have their first calf and start uh, giving milk. And so, you know, it's a two-year investment to raise those, those heifers up to be, become adults. And, um, yeah, so we're, we're small when you consider just the Arizona dairy industry. But anytime I go to national meetings, I'm sort of in the larger that um, amazing? group of dairies. Yeah, just because Arizona, we, you know, we need um, economies of scale to um, make things uh, affordable for us. You know, our, uh, our input costs here are higher than in other parts of the country. And so that's a, a reason why dairies out here in Arizona tend to be larger. So another thing we're celebrating, it's June, so we're going to be coming up on Father's Day, and we thought it would be fun. He'll be, your dad, Bill, will be in the second segment. And I thought, in celebration of Father's Day coming up, that you would kind of talk about your relationship with your dad, and when did you know you were inspired to be a dairy farmer? Yeah, so as a little kid growing up on a dairy farm, um, I kind of just assumed everyone grew up on a dairy farm. I, I didn't realize that it was something uh, sort of different and uh, unique until I was a little bit older. And then I realized, oh, wow, yeah, this is quite quite special. And so as a little kid, um, you know, I, I loved going around the farm with my dad, checking the cows, um, going to the fields and helping irrigate. And so I said, you know, that, that's what I want to do. I want to check cows and I want to irrigate, you know, just, just like my dad um, does and now that that's that's what I do, but um, yeah, it's a it's a great great experience and and you're not the only sibling. There's four of you. Yes, yeah. So I have three younger sisters, and all of them um, growing up, we were all involved on on the farm. Now since then, uh, you know, they've all uh, gotten married, and they're not active on the day-to-day -day dairy, but they do help out uh, at different times of the year when we're doing different stuff. They're always around, and, um, and it's fun to have them on the farm with us, uh, you know, regularly. So there's been a lot of innovation that's taken place on the dairy farms. Uh, technology advances you guys can track right down to every cow in the dairy. So talk a little bit about this and what you you have done on Kerr Dairy. Yeah, so each each cow has an EID, an electronic ID number, and so we can track those animals. We know exactly where they are on the farm, um, exactly what ration they're eating. It's really important for cows to be eating the, the right ration because their nutritional needs change as they're going through their um, production, uh, their lactation cycle. And so cows that are at their peak lactation need a complete different ration than cows that are what we call dry, which is basically they're not being milked before they have their calf. And so like the, those rations are very, very different. So we work really closely with our nutritionist, our dairy nutritionist to come up with the exact right formula for the cows. And we take into consideration things like um, the time of the year. So the, the needs of the dairy cow do change depending on if it's summer or winter. Um, we look at market fluctuations, just prices of different crops. They, they you know, go up or down depending on all sorts of different things, weather, uh, geopolitical issues, um, you name it. And so using that combination of, uh, of inputs is what we, we feed to our, our animals. I always joke that 
the dairy cow has a nutrition a personal nutritionist, and I do not. So <laughs> we know that they're happy cows. We know they're being fed really well, and you guys take this really serious. And those, their diet obviously will change based on the phase that they're in. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. So at our at our dairy, the cows go through four different rations in a given year, okay. depending on on where they're at. Um, and then our heifers, they have three different rations. So our young, our young non-milking okay. female cows, yes, yeah, a heifer is. You know, one of the things I find fascinating in the livestock industry is beef have an endless array of different breeds mm-hmm. in that segment of the industry, but dairy cows don't have quite as many breeds. So my question to you is, what are the main breeds of dairy cow that we utilize or have here in Arizona? Yes. Yeah, so in, in Arizona, the majority of the dairy cows are Holsteins, so the big black and white dairy cows, and they, they make up probably 80 to 85 percent of the milking herd. Uh, Jerseys are the smaller uh, brown colored cows, and they make up, you know, the, about 15 percent or so, depending. And of course, there's a lot of crossbred animals um, now as well. And so like on our farm, for instance, we do a lot of crossbreeding because the um, we've noticed that the animals perform better when we understand the genetics of, of the animals. And when you do crossbreeding, you get a really good mix and um, good components and, and butterfat, which was what we're going for. So you kind of referred to it earlier, but talk about their life cycle. For two years, you're raising the young heifer mm-hmm. to get her ready for production. So kind of what's that cycle? And and they basically don't start producing milk until they have their first baby. Yes. So, and that averages after two years. So kind of go mm-hmm. over that. Yeah. So I always like to to talk about that because cows have a whole different um, time scale than we do. It's sort of similar to dogs. You, know, you might say a, okay. a year, you know, for a dog is like 10, 10 or a, yeah, 10 years for a dog, you know, or yeah. a year for a human. It's it's pretty similar with, with cows. And so, uh, yeah, for those first two years, we're just growing them. Um, we want them to have their calf um, on or before their second birthday would be a good, uh, good baseline. And then they will continue to milk and they will have a calf once a year. Um, up until they're ready to retire, which might be five or six lactations down the down uh, the road, which is about five or six years later. So they basically had six to seven babies in that cycle of production. Yeah, too. some some okay. cows do. Yeah, the, the the best ones that are our longest uh, longevity animals do. They will have that many many babies. Okay, that's amazing, and we don't think about that. That obviously they have to have a baby first before they mm-hmm. can start milking. Exactly right. You're into genetics, yeah. uh, seriously into genetics, and I'm my uh, vibe on that for as long as I know you is probably one of the reasons that you finally ultimately said, yeah, I want to be in the dairy business. Talk about why you're so into herd genetics and, you know, your efforts on the pulled heifer. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right? You did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, I got interested in genetics at a pretty young age. Um, when I was really young, we only had Holstein cows on on our farm. And 99% of Holstein cows have black and white spots, but there's about 1% that have what we dairy farmers call a red and white spot instead. And uh, the average person might just call them brown brown cows or you know, brown spotted Holstein cows. But anyway, so these red and whites, I was just so interested, like how on earth did this why did they pop out? Why did they yeah. pop out? The, the mom is black and white. The, the, the dad is black and white. And here we have a red and white um, 
esque animal. And I just thought that was super interesting. I remember asking my dad about the genetics behind that. And he was like, oh, it's a recessive gene. It's just in the breed. And um, it, it, it's been there for a really long time. And it's like, well, that's cool. Well, um, as a six-year-old, my... Um, my youngest sister was born. All of us in our family have dark hair. My Both of my parents have dark hair, and, and me and my older siblings have dark hair, and my youngest sister had blonde hair and blue eyes, and we're like, wow, that's super interesting. <laughs> and so it was the same way with um, that uh, And it held your fascination eyes. on the genetics. It, yeah. it did, yeah. And so both of my grand, my grandfathers are blonde hair and blue eyes, and so my, my parents carry that, that trait. So anyway, that's what got me interested in it. Well, I got interested in, in the pole genetics, which is basically a fancy way of saying hornless, naturally hornless animals. So the vast majority of Holsteins are born with horns, and they need to be dehorned at, at a young age. And so we use um, pain management, we use lidocaine, um, just like you'd pull a tooth, you know, to, to dehorn the animals. And it's important to do that for safety of the animals themselves and also for us and our employees that are um, around the animals on a daily basis. Horns would create an issue for, with safety. Um, now, on the beef side, Angus is one of the most popular beef breeds in the world, and they are naturally hornless. If you see my milk cow, please drive that old heifer home. Put it low and dry. But we just learned that's technically incorrect. Because a heifer is a cow that hasn't birthed yet, so she wouldn't be milking. That's correct. Yep, exactly right. <laughs> Get that guy on the lyrics, writer, man. He's <laughs> go go spend a few minutes on the farm and then write your dairy song. That's right. Yep. Now you were just getting into a point about genetics, but I'm going to roll that over to the third segment because we've got a special guest on the line joining us, Mr. Bill Kerr, who had to jump off a train ride to join us uh, in this segment on air. So we'll bring Bill in and let him explain what's going on at the Kerr uh, farm stand today, Mr. Bill Kerr. Hey, how's it going this morning? Good morning. Thanks for taking a few minutes to join us. Sorry to interrupt the train ride with your grandkids. Oh, no, no. We're not. This is, it's all good. So, Bill, tell us about the train. It's kind of famous. Uh, you know, uh, they're basically uh, uh, all these uh, oh, uh, water softener tanks that you see that uh, when they get old and uh, people have to replace them, I go out and cut them in half and then make a little train out of them. <laughs> Uh, and uh, the kids uh, really enjoy it. The grand I did it for the grandkids, but it's turned into more of a, a deal than that. We have it in parades now, and uh, it's uh, just a lot of fun just to get out and have the kids uh, enjoy it. It's it, And it's funny, it seems like a, a lot of the bigger kids even still like doing it too, So, uh, what, but it's, it's, all, it's all fun. What kind of locomotive engine do you use to pull a uh, water softener train? <laughs> <laughs> This is actually being pulled by a gator, a John Deere gator uh, that we use. Uh, so, and it uh, has enough power to pull them all around the town, uh, all around the farm. And that's perfect. And you are literally near the farm stand where people can come and buy produce, fresh produce, and all sorts of stuff. So, Bill, tell us a little bit about that. You know what? We started it six years ago, and it was kind of my idea. I just kind of, you know, going through Farm Bureau and wanting to get people connected to where their food comes from and it was just getting people on the facilities where this stuff is grown and we sell our own homegrown beef that has, has you know it was raised on our farm as a baby and and so we get it processed so we've just started that in the last year but uh, i think just getting the people connected and it's uh it's really neat to see people just get excited about coming to the farm like 
you know, after 9-11, um, uh, food security was a major issue, and, and it was almost a time where we were closing up our our farms just to afford security reasons, and I think we need to just open that up a little more and let people know where our food is. And connect to the Kerr family, for one. And I also have another suspicion as to why you guys have this weekend farm stand, especially in the summer when all the kids are. You have coming on your 12th grandchild, so... I, yes. The rumor has it you keep your kids busy at this farm stand, right? You know, it, it, you're right, and it's so fun to see them get engaged to where, uh, you know what, you, you do some work, and you know what, you're going to get paid for it. And, and you know, yeah, if I do more work, I'll, I'll, I'll get paid more. And it's just, you know, with what we've come out of with the, the COVID issues that we've seen, what's happened to us, uh, it's just good to see uh, the the next generation of kids uh learning how to work and, and and i think you really have to do you have to be taught how to work and i think this is part of that uh process for all of the listeners not that they'll all show up at the same time don't worry i'm sure you'll have plenty of inventory but if i was in buckeye where would i need to go to get to the farm stand to see the kids selling me sweet corn and all that fun stuff you know, if you're coming from Phoenix, you'd get off on Verado Way, go south to the Highway 85, and then go west one mile to Dean Road. Our address is 8400 South Dean Road in Buckeye. And uh, if you're coming from the other direction, you would just come through the town of Buckeye and go to uh, Dean Road. Uh, but we have a lot of people come from Verado, Scottsdale, uh, uh, Peoria. Uh, awesome. And, but most of it's uh, the... the the Buckeye community, uh, we, we see a lot of our friends here. Local community, and, buying local food. That's the way to do it. Yep, and exactly. Going along my timeline, y'all settled there in the 70s, according to you know, Wes's history timeline here. You have a few more neighbors now than you did in the 70s oh. when you moved to Buckeye. You know, when we moved out of Tempe, Tempe was a farming community back in the 60s and 70s, one of the, you know, one of the most fertile uh, places to farm. But as you know, if you go to Tempe now, I don't think you'd find anything uh, like that. But we moved out here in 74, and I'm actually witnessing what happened in the 70s in Tempe starting to happen out here in Buckeye. And, you know, everybody gets so excited about seeing it, but when it's your livelihood, it's, uh, it's, uh, our farming is a little bit different whenever you see it this way. I mean, it's still exciting, but... Uh, you look at it a little different as a, a livelihood and, and your legacy that you have. Mr. Bill Kerr, thanks for jumping on the phone with us for a few minutes. 8400 South Dean Road in Buckeye if you want to hit the farm stand. She's sleeping. What you do is you put your shoulder into her and you push. And they fall over. <laughs> and this doesn't strike you as kind of Dumb. We're family. We're going to be doing lots of dumb stuff together. Wait till Christmas. <laughs> you keep your feet shoulder width apart. Stay between the udder and the hock. It's a 32 belly option on two on two. Ready? So, how often do you have to run cow tippers off the property? <laughs> Thankfully, not not very often. <laughs> That's great. You, you never got a visit by Chris Farley and, and Rob Lowe late in the night? Unfortunately not. <laughs> we have a very important 
and famous question. I'm going to start calling it from Rosie. So, Rosie, what's your question Here for Wes? Here we go. We, I know where we're... we we never bring a dairyman into studio where I don't want to hog the stage just for a minute and fuss at you, okay. Mr. Kerr. Mm-hmm. If we can have Arizonans accustomed to paying five fifty a gallon for gasoline, why can't I buy a pint of whole buttermilk? Uh-oh. And I'll pay five, six, or seven dollars for that buttermilk. Why can't we get when I fly home to Louisiana, the first thing I do is take the rental car to the Piggly Wiggly or the Wind Dixie, and I buy a pint of Bulgarian whole buttermilk, and I drink it. Now, why can't I buy whole buttermilk in Arizona? Very, very good question. Okay, um, <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> I will. I will ask that to our new CEO at okay. the United Dairymen of Arizona, and um, we can see if we can meet that demand. There's a market opportunity there. It sounds like, and I can I can empty the shelves of whole buttermilk, <laughs> no matter how much you put up there, with one buttermilk. Biscuit recipe, and awesome. it, it, Rosie, clear the shelves. And you have been preaching this. You, I know you have a following. I know you'd have plenty of people that would buy that buttermilk if they'd put it on the shelves. So uh, I mean, I, I have to you. make my own buttermilk yeah. in, in my own kitchen. Okay, <laughs> okay. We'll pitch I'll, it. I'll, I'll, I'll relinquish the floor. You in? <laughs> you brought up an interesting fact I hadn't thought about in a long time, but I can't. It was this dates back at least 15, 20 years ago. There was an article talking about. You know, quit complaining about the price of gas because at your convenience store, by weight, it's still cheaper than anything else. It's cheaper than a gallon of milk. It's cheaper than a gallon of <laughs> soda from the fountain. It's cheaper than a gallon of, you know, if you opened up, you know, if you bought an, uh, enough bottled tea <laughs> yeah. to be more than a gallon. Well, that's completely flip-flop now yep. where the, it's cheaper to go buy a gallon of milk than it is a gallon of gas. Yep, like, we appreciate our, our milk better. Well, we're going to get back to the pulled question in the genetic world, and we want to learn from you, Wes, on this one. Okay, yep, absolutely. So I was just mentioning that one of the most popular breeds, the Angus uh, beef cow, they are all naturally hornless, and so we call that pulled because that's the part of the animal, the top of the forehead there where the where the horns would come out, that is called the pole. And so, um, yeah, naturally hornless ones are pulled. So that is super common in the beef breeds. There are many pulled animals there. And the dairy side, though, it's extremely rare. Hmm. But I was able to um, to find some uh, genetics from uh, other parts of the, the country. There is a small herd in Pennsylvania that milk about 100 cows, and they had some very good registered pulled animals. And so we were able to use that genetics on our farm. And um, since that time, it's becoming much more popular uh, with dairy farmers, you know, it's um, it's better for, you know, the animals don't have to deal with any any stress that comes along with that, even though we provide um, lidocaine as uh, a pain mitigation with that with that process. But it's also just one less thing to have to do right. on the farm. There's just a lot of chores to do. And it's like, why do we want to waste time with something that we can solve through genetics? And you've kind of, it's kind of a little bit of a cause celebrity for mm-hmm. you. You've gotten a little bit of recognition in the dairy industry. You've gotten not national recognition, correct? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's true. I was, uh, we were one of the larger farms to first kind of really um, take hold of, of this idea. And so, yeah, I was able to be on the cover of our uh, Progressive Dairyman magazine for Yay! that. Yay, I remember that. So uh, have you achieved what you've, like, where are you with it on your dairy? Can every baby that's born... They're now a pulled heifer? 
Yeah, a huge percentage of it. Um, right now, about 85% of our um, animals are born naturally hornless. Okay. And so what's neat about the trait, I know I talked for a minute about recessive genetics, you know, so we talked about like the, the red and white coat color for the Holstein is a recessive and blonde hair, blue eyes for people is recessive. Um, polled is dominant. And so you can really? go quickly from a, a horned herd to a polled herd. Okay. Um, yeah. So how how big will the scale in the industry? Do you think it's going to move? At, when I say industry, the dairy industry, because it's obviously evident in the beef industry. Yeah, yeah. So it is moving up, uh, you know, rather rather quickly. So we're of course always concerned. We don't want too much inbreeding because you started with a very small, maybe half sure. a percent of oh, okay. Holsteins were naturally hornless, naturally pulled. Um, so you know you need to approach that in in a smart uh, way and strategy. But all of the um, the different genetics co- companies out there that supply genetics to dairies, they all have cool. pulled animals in their in their lineups. So this is one of the most common questions that we're asked at Arizona Farm Bureau. And when I'm hanging out with our dairy people and we've got, you know, people, our average consumer, they say, well, how do you keep your cows cool in the summer here in Arizona and have the level of protection? Because one of your priorities, besides the the health, the sustainability, you guys want your dairy cows to be happy So how Mm -hmm. and healthy. Because Mm -hmm. if they're happy and healthy... They would eventually produce that buttermilk for us. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> so, we'd so, all be happy. Yeah, we'd all be happy. So how do you keep them cool in the summer? Yeah, so of course that is, that is a challenge. You know, like all of us, none of us I don't think are too terribly fond of the, the heat uh, of the summer here in, in Arizona. But what we do is we have fans and misters that really help to cool those animals down. And they're all controlled by a computer that's um, looking at the heat index. And so it'll add more uh, water to the cows um, as needed. And we soak the cows in the barn too before they go get milk. So they all get a, a shower basically. Oh, fun. Yeah. And uh, so that really does help cool them down but even though our summers are quite hot our the rest of the year in Arizona is so fantastic that Arizona dairy cows end up being one of the most productive cows if you compare them state per state we are um, at the top of the pack as far as pounds of milk per cow per year and a cow in a day can produce eight to ten gallons do Mm -hmm. I have that right yeah that's exactly right so we're producing a lot of milk because we're drinking a lot of milk and all of the pr- the products that dairy fall into are mm-hmm. yogurt. And we have a lot of local products. I know when we had Tammy Baker with the Arizona milk producers here last fall, I believe it was, she highlighted a lot of the different products like Shamrock Farms, Dan Zeisen's mm-hmm. doing the flavoring, flavored milk. They're very popular. It's very popular. But even if I go into the store mm-hmm. and just pull out a gallon of milk, there, there's something like a 97% mm-hmm. chance that it's local. So the majority of our, fl- what they call in the industry, fluid milk mm-hmm. is local in the grocery store. So it's easy for us to access local, even if we don't go to the Kerr Family Farm stand mm-hmm. on Saturdays during the summer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of uh, local products. So like Daisy Sour Cream uh, has a plant here locally. And so, you know, that that is right here in, yeah. in, in town. Um, but yeah, a lot of, the, you know, the Fry's, Basha Safeway, all of the Albertsons, uh, you name it. Most, the vast majority of the local grocery stores are using Arizona milk. So the other thing, too, that a lot of people ask about was is that Okay, I don't want the whole milk, but I want the skim or the 2%. Can you explain what's those distinctions? And- 
Yeah, whole milk is great. Yeah, two percent like is gross and skim is disgusting. That's all you need to know. <laughs> That's kind of the way I feel. I only like whole milk. But when... and one thing that interesting, your dad had said at one of the annual Farm Bureau conferences. This was out in Mesa. I remember him talking about it. Was you know a lot of people like you know talking about you know you do your skim or two percent for weight loss. He's like, if you drink whole milk. It tricks your brain into thinking you're fuller, so you eat less. So it's healthier to drink whole milk than to drink skim or 2%. Yep. 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 I I said, fully agree with that. It was already gross anyway, and I was never going to drink it, but that that (laughs) solidified that I never have to ever worry about skim milk or 2%. (laughs) That's right. Well, let me be clear. We want everybody drinking whatever their preferred uh, milk is. So just keep keep going with that. But I have a trick question for you guys. What percentage of fat is in whole milk? Do you guys know? Because we have 2%, 1% skim. So what's whole? Nope, 4%, nope. It's probably it's, not even 10. No, yeah, so it's about 3, 3.2-ish. Yeah. Really? Isn't that amazing? Really? Isn't that incredible, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So 1,200 I, head, you, 8 t- gallons a day. <laughs> <laughs> the logistics of handling that much product yes. is mind-boggling. It yeah. is incredibly mind-boggling, and you'll notice um, as you drive along the freeway, you'll see a lot of our uh, local uh, milk Tankers going down the road, they all have. You were asking, Julie. You're asking how you keep the cows cool. Mm-hmm. How do you? What do you do? Oh yeah. With twelve hundred yep. times ten, twelve thousand gallons of milk a day. Yes. How, what? How do you handle that? Well, so the body driving down the free interstate yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. a big old trucker tank, and yeah. we've all seen them because a lot of times they're really well identified. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, well, the body temperature of a cow is 101 degrees, and we have to cool that milk down to 37 degrees uh, for just safety. You know, bacteria wants to grow in warm stuff, and so, but we we keep it very, very cold. And you immediately chill it. Yes. The wet you on one of your tours that you showed me, it's immediately chilled. It is. Yeah, we have a plate cooler um, that the milk runs through, and we have four reefers, industrial reefers, that cool that milk down from 101 degrees down to 37 or below. Really ideally 35 you know because uh, by the time it gets to the milk plant we still want it to be at 37 um, and so yeah in the summertime man it's 115 degrees outside yeah. you got you we really are working working hard to keep keep that milk cool keep the cows cool um, but thankfully we have excellent um, transportation um, people that we work with that uh, they handle all of that milk and get it to right where it needs to go to the various different plants around around the Phoenix area interesting and Maybe when uh, our final segment, we could talk a little bit about s- the sustainability in the dairy industry because you uh, continuously improve on those issues. And our consumers need to know that that's uh, front and center priority for the dairy industry. Absolutely, but, yeah. it is. We will, we will milk cows. <laughs> we I think we have celebrated Dairy Month very well in this segment, don't you think, Romy? Well, I wanted to talk about the logistics of cow tipping that we were talking about during the break. (laughs) Sometimes the best stuff is what uh, is talked about during the break only. Is it possible? Interesting. We have have to test it for airability (laughs) (laughs) during the break. (laughs) That's right. That's right. No, you know, I think. Theoretically, it is it is probably possible too because cows definitely uh, sometimes will sleep standing up, and so often on the farm when I'm walking around with the cows, I'll come up on a cow that's a, you know asleep. <laughs> and it, um, the thing is, though, you know they're they're up fifteen hundred pounds or more, 
and have four points of contact yeah. on the ground, you know. And so you would need um, probably a good group of people to help push a cow over. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, the chances of being able to get a group of people to sneak up on a sleeping cow is quite slim. So I think most of the time it's probably an, an urban legend. Yes, I call it the country Cover. urban <laughs> legend. That's right. So, so, are, are the cow's eyes open or closed when you're standing up sleeping? They are closed. The eyes are closed. I tell you, Wes knows a lot about milking cows. So, um, I want and a you lot to... of times when they're sleeping, they're laying down already. Yeah, m- most of the time they're they're laying down, but uh, they definitely do sleep standing up as well. And there's no tipping there when they're laying down. No, no, no. So, no. talk a little bit, real quickly, about the sustainability issue in the dairy industry. Very on target, very focused with it. You yeah. recycle your water, all sorts of. Oh things. yeah, we recycle our water. Um, we have a manure management programs. Um, I think one interesting tidbit of information just nationwide. So in 1944, there were roughly 26 million dairy cows in the United States. Well, today there's just over 9 million. And those 9 million dairy cows give more milk than the 26 million dairy cows did in 1944. And so it just shows that um, we're making lots of progress with the genetics of the animals themselves. The crop genetics as well are better using science and technology to be efficient. I just, I'm meant to drive, I always go come across town on Northern to get to the radio station, and I didn't today. And I remember wanting to do that specifically because the Rovi Dairy Mm -hmm. has on their farm a listing of how much more is grown on how much less acres and less water. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right, right. And I wanted to grab those statistics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. But... I was jamming to some tunes. And I wanted to stay on the freeway. So I yes. off on Northern. I stayed on the freeway. Yeah, we do so much more with so less. And that's kind of a representation of all of agriculture in Arizona and across the United States. We're truly a nation that has become incredibly in- efficient. And that efficiency has reduced some of those negative impacts sometimes that we mm-hmm. or that we have a tendency to think of. Uh, we've got to produce food and we want to do it well. And you yeah. guys in the dairy industry do it really well. But one more time, too, on the farm stand, um, and we just found out that you can order from the website also. Mm -hmm. So even though you're only open Saturday mornings, Mm -hmm. right? That's right. And that's only through the summer? Through June, yeah. Through June. So it's kind of tight, but there's product available on the website. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So my sister, Megan Kimberly, is the one in in charge of of that. Um, But yeah, you can do direct order uh, beef sales as well, uh, beef orders. And so she does that monthly throughout the year. Awesome. We've done profiles on the... Go ahead. You said that really quick, but just to connect the dots for people that listen to Rosie on the House a long time, they've heard the name Kimberly before because Kimberly is now... Uh, his father-in-law was Don Sanderson, so they're mm-hmm. now the owner of Sanderson Ford. So your sister's married to the Sanderson Ford family. I mean, there's a very, you know, circular tie here to the community. Yes, absolutely. That's correct. Yep. And the- so just just be honest. Have you ever bought a Chevy? <laughs> I have Dodge? not. Absolutely not. Ford, <laughs> a lifelong Ford uh, guy here. Just, just checking. Just checking. <laughs> and the Kimmerleys love the Kurs, and the Kurs love the Kimmerleys, and it's it's yep. a... Marriage made in heaven, right? Yep, yep. absolutely. So um, what else have we not asked you, Wes, that you always like to mention mm-hmm. in when you're promoting the industry that you're so embedded in? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, just the fact that the carbon footprint of a glass of milk has dropped by two-thirds since 1944. So we're using less land, less water, pr- less animals, producing more milk. 
And it's a fantastic story by embracing science and technology in our farming practices and our uh, raising our animals. That has really um, helped us to achieve those efficiencies. So, uh, for instance, this morning out in Buckeye, we're irrigating uh, one of our fields that we just got done uh, laser leveling. And actually part of the, the Rovi family, they, they helped us uh, use their machines to laser level the field so the grade is exactly right. And so the irrigation water will very efficiently and quickly run through the field. And so we're using less water, but growing much more crops. And so my dad always liked to mention how much he reduced his water use by doing mm -hmm. the same thing. Our entire farm was laser leveled. Mm -hmm. And uh, that reduces that per acre foot. It's mm -hmm. a measurement in the ag industry uh, by quite a bit. And that's another savings that we have. And I mean, you hear laser level, that doesn't sound that technical, but I mean, we're talking GPS units. Yep. I, I remember when my cousins did that in Louisiana on the rice fields, and mm -hmm. the way they would do it is it's all gravity-fed, so you would go with the terrain, and, I mean, they would take out a bunch of dikes and make the fields bigger, more flatter, and mm -hmm. more... Familiar. It Laser level is a very technical thing, and you're, you're talking hundreds of thousands of acres to do that. That's not a small feat. That's right. Yeah, it's quite incredible. Really cool. West Car, Car Dairy at the website? Uh, KerrFamilyFarmStand.com. And that's also at 8400 South Dean. You can get out there today. They'll be out there to 11. Julie Murphy, somebody wants to support the farm in Arizona Farm Bureau? Just go to the web, azfb.org, for 59 bucks a year.